The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Political pundits are supposed to argue in favor of their opinions. That's their job. The rest of us may be confused or uncertain and anxious, but the pundits are full of strong convictions and convincing arguments. Now we're going to depart from that rule and talk to Rick Perlstein. He's been doing a gut check about Bernie. Rick, of course, is the author of the classic book, Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. It was a New York Times bestseller, and it was picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by over a dozen publications. His most recent book is The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. And in August, I'm happy to say we will get his next one, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. He's the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice. He's a former online columnist for the New Republican Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in The New York Times, Newsweek, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Well, you've been a strong voice for years, actually for decades, arguing that a genuinely social democratic politics represents less of a risk for Democrats than trying to find some kind of middle ground. You even wrote a book about that. What was it? It's called The Stock Ticker and the Super Jumbo. It was uh, 2005. I wrote a long essay following the John Kerry defeat for Boston Review. And as they do, they published as a little book. What was your argument at that point? The argument was that basically the Democratic Party has been so addicted to kind of short-term tactical thinking that it appears to the voters to kind of tack all over the place and offer no kind of certitude about what they stood for. And I contrasted that to big ideas, big programs that deliver kind of political value to the Democrats for, you know, even half a century or a century or more coming up on the, the example of something like Social Security. The bottom line is, what Roosevelt did uh, with Social Security and what you know Johnson did with Medicare is the affirmative duty of every Democratic president to create you know a big entitlement program that delivers economic security to the middle class, and when they achieve that, kind of set a goal for the next one, expanding the New Deal, you know, kind of completing the New Deal project, as they used to say in the fifties and sixties. For decades, you've argued that the Democrats should put forward a genuinely social democratic politics. And you're one of the early people who said Bernie should be the candidate to do that. But uh, this week, we're talking before Super Tuesday here, you tweeted, there are so many things about Sanders as a person and a politician that disturb me. This is part of your gut check. What what are they? I I read following. It's a real gut check moment. 
Uh, I've been bitching about the awfulness of the D.C. Democratic establishment and the imperative for the Democrats to transform into a genuinely social Democratic Party for decades. Now, with Sanders' success, there are intimations of genuine possibilities on these fronts. And yet so many things about Sanders as a person and politician and also the movement around him disturb me, but also so much to be in awe of and admire Uh, How much of my doubts represent clear thinking and how much fear of actual genuine change? How much is to revive an ancient phrase, a generation gap? How much a reasonable fear that the stakes are too high in 2020 for a high-risk nominee? This in light of my arguments, again, going back decades, that a genuinely social democratic politics represents less of a risk for Democrats. Or maybe I should stick with my longstanding conviction that nominating a 78-year-old who's had a heart attack is simple political insanity. So let's take this one step at a time. What are the things about Sanders as a person and a politician that disturb you at this point? About him, you know, I think the age thing is really creepy. I mean, that's one of the reasons I've been a supporter of Elizabeth Warren. She's a little younger. And, you know, I think you need a two-term president these days, especially if you're going to achieve the kind of grand goals that Bernie Sanders has. And, you know, he'd be 87 years old at the end of a second term. And, um, you know, the, the, the stuff about the supporters, you know, I've been in a discussion about that this morning. Uh, a journalist wrote an article about a Sanders staffer who said really nasty things about the other candidates in a private Twitter account. And I wrote a post in solidarity with the journalist. And, you know, people are saying, you know, oh, that trust fund baby deserved worse than he, you know, kind of nonsense. And I, you know, tried to like, you know, make the point. I don't, I don't care if the article is good, bad or different. You know, they had, you know, basically... Uh, someone basically sabotaged his phone number so he couldn't use it anymore. And, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like it. And uh, the response uh, has, has been, you know, a lot of mockery, but inside jokes, you know, which I think kind of ill befits a, a mass movement. But the thing of the, the thing of it is, and this is where the historian in me comes in, who's, you know, been studying social movements, you know, for 25 years and why they succeed and why they fail is, is the transition from insurgency to power. And as Bernie Sanders arrives at a place where he is approaching the nomination or wins the nomination or approaching the presidency or wins the presidency, more and more criticism of things that are not very democratic in temper from his supporters will be made from inside the Sanders coalition. The the response from his supporters can't just be, you're the enemy, you're a bad person, you just don't get it, you must be in the professional managerial class. There has to be some sort of constructive engagement (laughs) so these people can work together. But I want to ask you about the second part of that sentence. There is so much to Uh be in awe of and admire about Bernie. I mean, obviously, about Bernie Sanders, his consistency in advocating for social democratic values, you know, come hell or come high amazing. And his ability to inspire a mass movement of people behind him and win three primaries in a row. If that had happened in any other year, people would be saying, oh, my God, he's he's uh, the shoe in. This is an amazing thing that someone outside the policy consensus of the Democratic Party, who's an outsider to the, to the centers of power in the Democratic Party, could do this. It's amazing. And, you know, I love I love Elizabeth Warren. I think she'd make a great president, but she's not achieving what Bernie Sanders is achieving. And in a democracy, that's what it's all about. My broader frustration com- uh, that this work comes from 
transcends to Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. It's this idea that you can kind of confidently predict the future. Yeah. That, you know, you're seeing from people in the right wing of the Democratic Party that, of course, Bernie can't win. You're seeing people from the left wing that, of course, Bernie can't lose. And, you know, after 2016, when, you know, election night in New York Times, you know, went from like, you know, 98 percent chance to like, you know, 80 percent chance to 60 percent chance to zero percent chance of Hillary Clinton winning. I, I think that kind of confidence in a time of great change when all the old rules are being rewritten, rewritten uh, is really untoward. To be in a space of uncertainty, of not knowing, is really the only way to kind of really create a solid analysis. And I think we just have to kind of live our values and do the work. Right now, that doesn't really add up to any kind of certitude about whether Bernie would be a disaster or Bernie would be a salvation. But you are a data person, and the data we have, data about right now, of course, not about November 3rd, But the data we have say that Bernie is the best we've got. He beats Trump by the biggest margin in the matchups in the polls. That's true. He's most popular among the Democrats and Democratic-leading independents. He's raised by far the most money from by far the most contributors. We don't have the data from October 2020. We don't know what's going to happen when a candidate, unlike any of the Democratic Party, is really run, you know, is in a general election. You know, we don't have uh, the data of how he's going to hold up to this. We don't have the data over whether his health is going to hold. We don't have the data over what the Republicans know and are going to drop about him. You know, we, we, we can't act just out of fear instead of love, you know, and say we can't risk the things we need as a society just because, you know, we might not get them. But we also have to be, you know, what, what is it, what is it uh, was it Gramsci who said we need uh, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. But we also have to kind of hope. There's nothing easy or uh, preordained about what we're talking about now. This has been the Gut Check Radio Hour with Rick Perlstein. Rick, you have broken the mold of punditry today. You've challenged the convention that pundits must be sure they are right. For that and for everything else you do, we thank you. The first cover article I ever wrote for The Nation in 2001 was called Pundits Who Predict the Future Are Always Wrong. That was a moral judgment. (laughs) That's a fantastic line. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Cheers. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.